Matthew chapter 1. This morning, I am, I'm going to admittedly break uh, one of the unwritten rules. We are going to look at the birth of Jesus today, but it is Christmas Eve, so we are a little bit ahead of schedule, and I don't know how much trouble I'm going to get in for doing this, but as I was looking at the preaching calendar, I realized next Sunday, the 31st, technically that's the Sunday we're supposed to be doing this, but by the 31st, I imagine that for some of you, your focus will have shifted away from the manger, and you will be thinking about other things, spiritual things, of course, but I think it might feel a bit jarring to jump back to the manger on the 31st. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to strike while the iron's hot, and I'm going to suffer the consequences, be what they may. So we're here in, in Matthew chapter 1, and today, we, uh, next week, by the way, we're going to look at the second coming of Jesus, the second advent. So please come for that. I'm looking forward to that. But today, we're looking to the town of Bethlehem, and we are going to see that our God is, in fact, a promise keeper. So Matthew chapter one, we're gonna read the whole chapter today, all the way to the end of verse 25. So look with me now, Matthew chapter one, verse one. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconia and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconia was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I'm not a mind reader, but I imagine as I started going through verses uh, two and onward, some of you were wondering, is he gonna do this? We're gonna read through all of the names on this list? Yes, yes we are. Yes we are. Genealogies are, are part of the Bible that we often struggle with. I recognize that, I'm not naive to that. I know we've got these Bible reading plans over here and for some of you, you're gonna grab these plans and you're gonna get started, but you're going to hit a point in the year when you come to one of these dreaded genealogies in your Bible reading. And it is the place where many of our best laid Bible reading plans goes to die, isn't it? Why is this here? Why is this here? All of these names, all of these lists, what purpose could this possibly serve? We ask these questions. But I wanna remind you, and you know this, but let me just remind you, it is there for a reason. It does serve a purpose. Matthew, it's not like when I was in school and I was writing an essay and I had to you know, put in some fodder to get to my word count. Matthew's not like that. Actually, Matthew, he's, he's cutting things away, right? Because he's only got so much word count and he's got a lot of important things to say. And yet, within those limitations, Matthew says, no, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we're putting this here. So it does serve a purpose. It is there for a reason, but why? It's a good question. And I would suggest to you that if you have been tracking along with us over the last few Sundays, and even last year in the same series, if you've been paying attention to these sermons, then you are perhaps equipped to, to answer this question. Why is this here? Why is it that Matthew would go to such great lengths to show us that this child who's being born in Matthew chapter one is this child who's coming back through the line of David, even all the way back to Abraham? Why would he be so painstaking in showing us that that is the case? It's because this is the child we've been waiting for. Because this event in Bethlehem, this birth, is not just some kind of strange detour in God's story. This isn't some, some um, mysterious, surprising moment in the scene. No, this is the culmination of what we have been waiting for. All the Old Testament threads of promise that we've been following, all the longings, the expectations, and the hope, Hope for a, a future, hope for a savior who will finally deal with our spiritual enemy, hope for someone who will lead us out of captivity into freedom. All of that is landing here on the birth of this child in Bethlehem. This isn't a detour, this is it. And Matthew is, is wanting to make sure that we see that. So church, let's see it. God's promise in Genesis three to the serpent that a child would be born of a woman who would crush the serpent's head is coming to fulfillment here. God's promise in Genesis chapter 12 to Abram that through his family a child would be born and through him all the nations would be blessed. That is finding its fulfillment here. God's promise in 2 Samuel 7 to David that he would have a son who would sit on the throne but he would actually reign forever is being fulfilled here. 
God's promise in Micah 5 that that eternal king would be born in Bethlehem is being fulfilled here. God's promise in Isaiah 9 that in this dark, dark world, light is going to break through because unto us a child is born and a son is given and he is going to be a divine son is being fulfilled here. And God's promise in Ezekiel 34 that a good shepherd is going to be sent to us who's going to lead us out of our captivity and seek and save lost people like you and me is being fulfilled here. And of course, if we didn't know our Bibles and we didn't read our Bibles and we weren't familiar with our Bibles, then we would, we would skip all of that and we'd say, I can't wait to get through that genealogy and get to the story. But of course, we know our Bibles now, don't we? And so we've been equipped to see that this is what Matthew's drawing our attention to. Our God is a promise keeper. And so we can now say with the Apostle Paul, we can point to the manger, point to Jesus and say, for all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him. In him. This child. He is Emmanuel. Matthew inserts an explanation just just so you don't miss it. You know what Emmanuel means? It means God with us. He is Jesus The angel says, the one who will save his people from their sins. That's who he is. Now this morning, we're we're gonna adopt a slightly different approach. If you've been with us more than once, you know our typical approach is to get into the the passage and then to work our way through piece by piece and unpack and explain. Today, what I wanna do on this special occasion is I actually, I want to zoom out because that's what we've been doing over the whole series, right? We've been looking at the Christmas story with a wide lens that stretches all the way back to Genesis 1. And so now that we've, we've been doing this over these last few weeks, I want to now look at this Christmas story with this wide lens and draw out some big rock, big rock lessons for us. What, do we, what have we learned? How should this Christmas story change us? That's the question. I want to just pull out four lessons for us today. First, in light of all that we've seen in this story, let us resolve to grow in patience. Look again at verse 17. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, Matthew's saying a couple things there. And, and if we were dealing with this differently, we would walk through all of that. But let me pull out a really obvious observation. That's a long time. It's a very long time. How many generations are represented in this room? Raise your hand if you're the, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if you're the oldest, no. What, what three, maybe four generations in this room? That's a, that's a broad span. Here we got 14 and 14 and 14, and this doesn't even go all the way back to Adam. This is a long time. We've been walking through these promises. Let's just pull back and see here that the fulfillment that happened in Bethlehem is happening a long, 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 long time from when these promises were first spoken. If we've learned anything from this series, it's that God does not operate on our timeline. He is playing the long game. We know that, but let's, let's just grab hold of that and remember that. When Eve first heard this promise, when, well, God spoke the promise to the serpent, but when she first heard that, she was likely assuming that the child who would be born, who would crush the serpent's head, that that child would come through her. And she had a child, and she had another child, And she watched with horror as rather than crushing the serpent's head, one of her children crushed the other child's head. She realized this is not going to be the fulfillment that I was waiting for. She had to wait a long time. And Abraham, likewise, 
God promised that through him, all the nations would be blessed through his seed. And yet Abraham, he spent his entire life wandering in the wilderness. He died in the wilderness. When God spoke his promises to the people of Micah in Isaiah's day, those people were wiped out by the nation of Assyria. When God spoke his promise in the days of Ezekiel, you realize most of the people who heard that promise, most of them would have died in captivity in Babylon. You say, well, this is a very depressing sermon. Yeah. It, well, it, it is a depressing point. You think it's depressing for you? Imagine how depressed the Jews were living in the days of Jesus. The people who were hanging all of their hope on these promises that were not coming to fulfillment. This was, this was all their hope. And they're looking at generation after generation after generation. Great, 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 great grandpa was trusting in the fulfillment of this promise. And yet here we are, still living under the thumb of another captor. And once we get out from under their thumb, we'll be under the thumb of another captor. Where is this king? Where is this Messiah? Where is this hope? Where are the fulfillments of these promises that God made to us? It was depressing, terribly depressing. It was a very dark time until a child was born in Bethlehem and God reminded us that he's doing something in this world. He's doing something in our lives that stretches beyond our limited timelines. He reminded us that there is hope even when it looks so hopeless. There is light even when you feel like you've been living in the dark. God's not done. God is not done. He's working his plan. It's a good plan. Even though his plan is not like your plan and his plan is not following your plan's timeline at all, God is working his plan and it is a good plan. Patience is hard. It is hard, even on a good day. Our kids are, are, are gonna see that tomorrow morning. Patience is really hard, waiting for dad to finally wake up. Some of you are feeling it right now. Patience, you're listening to my sermon. You know, patience is hard, right? When is he? It is hard on a good day. But patience is it's pretty well impossible on a bad day. When you're suffering, when you're, in, when you're hurting, patience is all but impossible. Yeah, we need to grow in it. Listen, some of you, some of you had a great year, but there are some people in this room, and 2023 was, was a year that you would not relive for a million dollars, right? You, you cannot wait to turn the calendar to the next year. Before you do, can I just encourage you? Stop and look back. That mess behind you. Because when you were in the thick of it, didn't it feel like it would never end? Didn't it feel like you would never get through this? Can I just remind you, God has brought you through it. He's, he's seen you through. You didn't think it was possible. It, he did it. He carried you. He didn't let go of you for one second. There were times when, when truth be told, humanly speaking, you probably didn't deserve for him to keep carrying you, keep holding on to you, but he held on to you every step of the way. He's not done. Pastor Paul used to always say, and I've, I've got many Pastor Paulisms that are tucked away in my head, and I always have to remind you that it's from Pastor Paul, and I have to remind myself lest I think I'm clever. But Pastor Paul used to always say that God's not like a microwave. He's like a slow cooker, right? Slow cookers take time. Some of you have got a wonderful meal right now in the slow cooker, don't you? The best things take time. Well, God is doing the best thing. He's doing the best thing. Something glorious is cooking. It's going to take some time. It is. So let us resolve, in light of all that we've seen in this Christmas story, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, let us resolve as the people of God to grow in patience. That's our first big rock lesson from this Christmas story. Second, in light of all that we've seen, let us resolve to expect more from less. 
As we look back over this span, this, this story, we will look back to Abram, Sarah. We're reminded the barren woman can become the mother of a nation. We look back at David, little David. We're reminded that the shepherd boy can become a king. We look at this little town of Bethlehem. We're reminded that these little unknown towns can become the place in which the savior of the world is born. We're reminded that the lowly manger can become a royal throne. We're reminded of what the Apostle Paul taught us. The Apostle Paul said, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. He uses the little things, the lowly, forgotten things to change the world. (laughs) This is the Christmas story, isn't it? Part of it. Believe that this morning. Some of us are spending far too much time looking in the mirror and wondering how on earth could God use this insignificant person who's staring back at me, this lowly person? What on earth could God possibly do with my life? We need to stop doing that. If that's you, you've got to stop that. Stop indulging those thoughts. That's not faith. That's not faith. To use an analogy from the Bible, maybe you're here today, you're visiting, and you're, you don't come to church very often. This is all new to you. But I bet you know the story of David and Goliath, Right? That's a story I can count on everybody here knowing. Well, you know, you remember a lot of details from that story. You remember little David. You remember Goliath. You remember that David slings a stone at at Goliath and it sinks into his head and the the giant is defeated. But you know, that little stone, it was just this little insignificant smooth stone that he found. He found five of them and he used the one. When we tell that story, we never stop to think about what an impressive stone that was. Aerodynamic, cut right through the wind, sunk right. No, we never do, do we? Never think about the stone. It was just this small, insignificant little stone. And yet, because it was wielded by David, because God had a plan, that little insignificant stone was used to fell the giant. Now, that's not the point of the story of David and Goliath, but what I'm saying is this. You're looking in the mirror, you're seeing this little insignificant person, and you're wondering, what is God going to do with me? Or you look around this gymnasium and this little insignificant congregation, and you think, what's God going to do with us? And I would say, listen, the the little insignificant thing, that's not where the power comes from. It's the one that's wielding it that brings the power. And our God is a glorious God. When we're in the hands of our Savior King, the King like David, the greater David, when we're in his hand, when you're in his hand, oh, don't put a limitation on what God can do in and through us. And it's not because of us, right? I'm so glad it's not because of us. God's not looking at us and saying, what an impressive lot of people. Look at Levi, look at that sweater, look at him go. He's going to have a day. He's not, no. God sees me and, and all the stuff that I see in me that, that makes me so insignificant, God sees through all of that and he sees right, to, it's, it's worse than I know actually. And yet, when we're in his hands, oh, he does powerful things. And the Christmas story, this whole line is remarkable. I mean, we read through that genealogy. It was two Christmases ago that we did a series where we worked through that genealogy and we we looked at the, the women that were mentioned in that list. Women who, many of them had scandalous stories. There are, there are people that Matthew draws our attention to in that story. Prostitutes and it, really tragic stories that what David did with Bathsheba. All of that is recounted in this genealogy. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, included all of that. Why? It's because in this mess of a story, these are real people. 
real broken people, real people with sin, and yet God, he's making much out of this littleness. He's making much of this mess. He does this. God saved you for a reason. He did. He placed you in your family. He placed you on your street. He placed you in your workplace for a reason. So don't waste your life sitting on the sidelines, staring in the mirror, feeling sorry for yourself. Just let's say, God, I'm in your hands. Just do it. Do it. And let's see what he does. You say, well, where do I even start? Okay, well, in the same way that God uses little insignificant people to change the world, God uses little insignificant steps to change people. So can I just suggest as we head into the new year, I know some people hate New Year's resolutions and all that. I actually think they're wonderful. Can I put forward a few just for you to consider? Just tiny little steps. Because I'll tell you, pastorally, in my life, I've, I've learned something, is that there is tremendous value in one little step of obedience. I think it's Jordan Peterson wrote a book called um, A Long Obedience in the Right Direction. I think Eugene Peterson, not Jordan Peterson. <laughs> Eugene Peterson, um, A Long Obedience in the Right Direction. There's something special about just small steps of faithfulness. And sometimes we, we get so ambitious and we want to do a hundred incredible things and we start going and then we get exhausted and we can't do it and we do fall back into a mess. What if you just set your eyes on one small step of obedience? One goal. And so can I, I'll, I'll suggest a few for you to consider. What if you identified one neighbor on your street and you resolved to pray for them once a week all year long? But that would change your evangelism habits. I bet that would even just change your alertness to what God is doing in and around you. What if you set your alarm 10 minutes earlier and you resolved to read two chapters of the Bible a day and by the end of the year you found yourself a person who has a a habit, who actually enjoys waking up and reading their Bible? Boy, that would change your life, wouldn't it? What if you set a reminder in your phone that would remind you to pray with your spouse before bed just for five minutes every night. That would change your marriage. I promise you that would change your marriage. What if you, what if you picked one night a week and you said, okay, we are going to block out this night of the week and we as a family are gonna sit down together and eat this meal together and we're gonna talk about what God's doing in our lives. We're gonna talk about our days. We're gonna do it. Well, that would change your family. God uses little steps of faith Little steps of obedience to accomplish massive world-transforming change. So don't begrudge the little things. He's in the business of making much from little. Let us resolve to expect more from less. Third, in light of all that we have seen in this Christmas story, let us resolve to be grateful. If you forget everything I've said thus far, let's, let's make sure that we nail this, church. Because when we look honestly at the world, while there is much to celebrate, and there is, there is also so much for us to mourn. I appreciate, uh, Josh, as you alluded to in your prayer, the fact that this is a, there's a tension today. There's some people in this room who are just so thankful for Christmas time, and there are others of us where this particular day is pressing grief in a really profound way. We're living in this, it's a messy world, isn't it? Much to celebrate, but much that causes us to mourn. And the older I get and the more I learn about people and politics and the economy and to be honest, myself, the more it's, well, it's easier to succumb to despair at times. There is so much that's wrong out there, in here. The problem runs deep. Well, in the same way, Abraham, he was 
looking at his barren wife when he received his promise. Isaiah looked at the surrounding Assyrians that were making their way down through the northern tribes. Ezekiel looked at the Babylonian captors who were erasing their culture and their heritage. All these problems seemed unsolvable. And we wonder, who could ever make this right? This broken world, our broken lives, who could, who could do anything that would possibly get close to setting it right? And it's in that despair that the words in verse 21 come breaking through. The angels speak to Joseph. And you remember what they say? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now I know you know this, but don't let your familiarity with this truth prevent you this Christmas from standing in awe. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came to save us from our sin. And sin is, of course, what is wrong with our lives and what is wrong with this world. Jesus is the only one who can get to the root of it and deal with it, and he has come so as to deal with it. He didn't need to do this. I was, as I was preparing this week, I just, it struck me. I was reminded afresh that how glorious it is. He really did not need to do this. We made this mess. I, I am the one who caused my sin. I did it. Uh, this world, we have sinned. And so the chaos that's come as a result of our sin, it is our fault because we did it. And, and in fact, our sin was not just, it was like a, a rebellion, a rejection of God, a rejection of Lord Jesus. And yet, even though we deserve the chaos that we've caused, God being rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love, which the Britons reminded us of this morning, holding himself to the promises that he made long, long ago with faithless and fickle people, God sent his own son into the world. Jesus left his heavenly throne and he clothed his divinity with our humanity and he came to us so as to lift us up, to, to bring us out of our mess and to clothe us with righteousness so that we could be with God forever. It's a scandalous story and skeptics look at the Christmas story and let's be honest, they do mock this story. We should know that, I'm sure you know that already. But unbelievers, maybe, maybe there's some of you in this room, point at this story that we're celebrating and they say, you know that this is absurd, right? That you're saying that the God of the universe entered into the womb of this young woman in the Middle East and was born and, and grew up and then that, that somehow this broken, messed up world, that somehow the way that this world is gonna be saved is for this person to then go and, and die a horrific death on a cross and that somehow that's gonna save the world. That's ridiculous, they say, and we say, yes. I mean, it is ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous, it's scandalous. It's the most absurd thing that God would do that to save people like us. It is ridiculous, and it's the truth. It's the gospel. It is actually what we need. It is what we need, it's what you need, and I pray that maybe if you're here and you're looking at that ridiculous thing, I pray that God would open your eyes to see it is, it is what you need more than anything in the world. 
God saw us in this mess that we'd made and rather than leaving us to suffer consequences that we deserve, he came down into this mess with us and yes, this is what needed to be done to save us and to root out all that is wrong with us. And the reason why, one of the analogies that I like is this analogy of a sponge. When I think of Jesus, I think of this sponge. He came down into this mess with us and then like a sponge, he soaked up in himself, all of the sin, all of this filth, everything that's wrong with with me, everything that's wrong with you, everything that's wrong with the world, he soaked it up in himself to the full, and then he took that to the cross, and it was like it was just wrung out once and for all, finally, at the cross. Anyone who puts their trust in Jesus, all of their sin gets soaked up. Now, he could only do that because he was truly man, right? That sponge can't do anything unless you put that down on the table, But he came down to us, and as a truly man, he he came in our place, he soaked up our mess. But again, one man, one finite man, how how much sin can he soak up? Well, Jesus, because he is truly God, was able to bear in himself the sin of the world. And that's what he did. And only he could do it. Adam couldn't do this. Abraham couldn't do this. David couldn't do this. Solomon couldn't do this. As we get to the end of the Old Testament, we start thinking, nobody can do this. In fact, you're not ready to be a Christian. You're not ready to receive this gift until you come to the point where you can say, I can't do this. That's the point. We can't solve this. We, we can't. Nobody can. Except the God-man, Jesus Christ. He could do it. He can do it. He can fix this. And he has come. And he has fixed this. Here is a gift, here is a grace that is absolutely, scandalously ridiculous. It's true. It's a love that nobody here in this room could ever earn, but that all of us have been offered freely and lavishly, this love of God for us in Christ. And I don't care if you're here today and you have, you have got sins that would just shock everybody in the room and you think, man, you wouldn't be talking about this if you knew who I was. He knows who you are and he sent his son because he loves you. He sent his son to save you if you put your trust in Jesus today and let go of that sin. This free love is yours. It's yours. And if, and if you're here today and you're a Christian, you're in Christ, you have received that gift. And today, I just want to invite you to stand in awe and be grateful that you've received this. Maybe you woke up feeling exhausted and you've, just, you've already had the conversation five times this week about how Christmas is so busy. I don't even, it doesn't even feel like Christmas. What a mess. There's not even any snow. I'm so tired. You woke up today feeling grumbly and, and sad and cold and we're singing the songs and you're like, I don't, I, don't, I don't even know. I'm going through the motions. And yet, even still, God loves you. And even though you can't feel that love today, it is yours because of Christ. He loves you. He's got a place for you. Even though you don't feel like yourself today, he's, he loves you. Be grateful for that. Be grateful that it doesn't depend on us and our fickle, flailing feelings. It depends on Christ and he's accomplished it. We couldn't do it but he did it. So this Christmas, let us resolve to be grateful. And then lastly, in light of all that we've seen, let us resolve to share this good news. See, if Jesus had not come down to us, if the Son of God had not entered into our mess, then we would still be lost in the dark without hope. But he did come. He came. One of the things that I hope and pray that we'll be struck by as we reflect on this Christmas story is the powerful example that we see at the manger of evangelism and mission. 
the incarnation, God, God clothing himself in our humanity and coming to us is a beautiful example of evangelism and mission. In order to lift us up, Jesus condescended down to us. In order to lead us out of the dark, he entered into the dark. In order to redeem our broken story, he became a part of our story. When we truly understand Christmas, it helps us to understand just what it will take to lead lost people back home. Brothers and sisters, I just want to ask you to think about this. Don't just hear this, but really think about it. Are you willing to bring this good news into dark places? That's what Jesus did for us. We can't share this good news if if we're intended to just sit back in our comfortable places and watch the world at a distance. Jesus didn't do that for us. He came right to us. He entered in. So we need to do that. We need to do that. If we're going to share this good news, that's what it's going to look like. And you say, well, okay, well, what is that? What do I do with that? Give me some practical, okay, well, let's talk about what that looks like. While we're thinking about New Year's resolutions, can I propose some suggestions for you this morning? One of them is, is so easy, it's right in front of your nose. Um, and, I, and yet I think it's probably the most neglected area for evangelism. And not just here, but in North America. We're just not thinking about this. I wonder if you realize the mission field that's all around you in this room this morning. I mean, just think about it. There are people on any given Sunday, people here, they don't, they don't know God. They, don't, they have not put their trust in Jesus, but they're here. They're here for a friend or they're here because they're interested, they're curious. They're, and, and yet here they are, they're here. And they're listening to the word of God preached and they're accumulating, you know, 10 objections and 15 more questions and, and, and they're going to just get up and they're going to walk out of the room on any given Sunday. That's what happens. What would it look like for us to say, hey, you know what, once a month, I'm gonna, we're going to block out a Sunday, we're going to make some extra chili, and we're going to, when we spot somebody new at, at the Sunday morning service, we're going to invite them home for lunch. And we're just going to ask them, hey, what do you, what do you think? What brought you here today? What did, you, what did you think of the, the sermon? Yeah, got any questions? I mean, that, you've got people who are already primed. <laughs> like, they're already ready. You don't even need to flip out your Bible and say, well, let's start a Bible study and then ask, deal with questions. Like, you've already, you've, done through, you've gone through that. Now you can unpack. You can deal with questions. You know that there's some kind of spiritual appetite because you met them at church. Like, all you got to do is carve out a day and make some extra chili. I would suggest to you, if, if five of us in this room took that on in the coming year, we would see God do some really special things here. I wonder how many people have come and gone in, in, just in this gymnasium and uh, they walked out of here with a couple curiosities, a couple questions, and then we didn't see them again. Strike while the iron's hot. This is a great place for us to grow in just coming and meeting people where they're at. But then second, I want to challenge you, I'm challenging myself too, to think about your street and as you go into this new year, what would it look like for you to resolve to invite somebody on your street into your house for dinner? You know, you're already seeing them, you're getting the mail, you're walking the dog, you're doing the small talk. What would it look like for you to say, hey, you know, we'd love to have you over for dinner one time. Is there a night of the week that works for you? What's the worst thing that can happen? They say no. And you get your mail and you go back to your house. But when it's eating meals together, it's sitting at that table together, that's where real relationships are forged, Right? That's where the conversations are finally able to go past the rushed talking about the weather that you do at the mailbox. 
What if you just went for it? Because here, I'm going to hazard a guess that one of the primary reasons that so many of us find evangelism to be so impossibly difficult is because we're trying to share the good news while simultaneously keeping everybody at arm's length from us. And I think that's because we're Canadian, you know, and we're a bit awkward. And so it is hard. It is messy. When you bring people into your house, that's, that's messy. That's, things are different. That's no longer arm's length. But I'll tell you, if Jesus had kept us at arm's length, none of us would be here this morning. And for most of us, now some of you grew up in the church, and so mom and dad had to keep you closer than arm's length, and that's where you heard the gospel. But for some of us, you didn't grow up in the church, and you're here today because there was somebody in your life who, who became a part of your messy story, who took that risk of stepping into the darkness of your life, of, of wading into the mess of your life so that they could grab hold of you and say, hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? And that's why you're here today. Jesus didn't stay back at arm's length. He came to us. Praise God that he didn't. Praise God that the king came down to us. That's, that's the story, the miracle of Christmas. God with us, Emmanuel. And as the angel announced, he has come to save his people from their sins. I hope that you know that truth today. And I would just throw it out again. On a day like this, I suspect that there just might be a couple visitors with us. We would love to tell you about King Jesus. And this isn't some fairy tale. I mean, you, maybe you're saying, yes, it is. Well, there's, you know, there's 100 people around you right now who would say, this isn't some fairy tale. This is everything. It's everything. And you got some problems in your life? I, you know, I bet. Financial stress and maybe health stress and relational stress and you got d- discouragement and you're wondering, yeah, but these thi- this doesn't apply to, to my life. Listen, yes, it does. What you need is Jesus, first and foremost. He is what you need. And you, you could talk to anybody here in this room and say, is this really, really you think that Jesus is what I, what I need? And they would tell you absolutely wholeheartedly, yes. This is what you need. This is good news. It is good news. Now, it's good news that it's going to flip your whole life upside down. We should tell you that. It's going to change everything. And we should let you know that coming in. But wow, it is gloriously good news. I pray that you would receive it today. And so you could, if you're here and you've got questions, you could talk to me after the service, but talk to the person next to you. They, they know the answers too. The person in front of you, behind you, we would love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. And we'd love to tell you about King Jesus. We'd love to invite you to come behold the wondrous mystery. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your grace to us your mercy to us, your compassion for us, Lord. Um, we confess that life is just can be so terribly hard. It can. And God, I know that if we could pull back and see the whole playing field and see all the things that you're doing, then Lord, these, these problems that feel so big right now would probably feel small. But we can't see that because we're not you. And so they do look enormous and God, and we do feel frightened at times and hopeless at times. And God, I just thank you that you are not naive to what we feel. Lord Jesus, you came and you lived with us, among us, as one of us. You know what it is to be tired and you know what it is to be rejected. You know what it is to be beaten and mocked and mistreated and misunderstood. And you've tasted death for us uh, so that we could taste resurrection with you. Uh, We thank you. We, uh, we just pray that today you would touch our hearts. God, I confess that we struggle, uh, Lord, we do, with 
the weight of this glory, Lord, the, the things that we ought to feel, and yet, Lord, we're, we're so changeable. Rain and cloudy weather and dark days and the discouragements of our lives can leave us feeling so cold and far from you. Thank you that, Lord, you meet us in this weakness, Lord, and you point our eyes back to your son. So I pray that today you would help us as your people to worship you in spirit and in truth. As we sing these next songs, Lord, I pray that you'd stir our hearts. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know you, God, that maybe even just through singing these truths that we've just sat and listened to, Lord, that that maybe, just maybe by your spirit, you would press this truth deep into our hearts and that today would be the day when we receive this gift, this most incredible gift that's ours to receive. Lord, I pray for that. I ask for that. God, you can do that. Lord, so stir up gratitude in our hearts. Lord, stir up wonder in our hearts. Lord, be pleased with the songs of your people. And then, Lord, be, pre- be pleased with our lives as we go from this place to live for you in worship. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?